2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. As we consider then the purpose of God in our lives as believers in Christ, we have noticed that God has placed this treasure, the treasure of the light of the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has placed this in earthen vessels. This speaks of your life as a believer, my life as a believer, inside of our everyday clay pot kind of lives. And then the goal is to open up the vessel in order to reveal the treasure so that those whose minds are blinded, blinded by the God of this world, he says in verse 4, so that the light of the gospel then can be seen to them. Every day when you go to work, every day when you go out to the grocery store, every day when you go to the post office, every day as you go about your business, you may not realize it, but you are bumping into people who have been blinded by the God of this world, that's the devil, and their minds are closed off to the gospel but they're open to you. They're open to you. And through all of the situations that we go through in our life, then God is opening us up to reveal the treasure. The last one, of course, he introduced to us all the way back in verse 10. And uh, he says, always bearing about the body, the di- in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body, For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh, so then death works in us, but life in you. And the ultimate way then that God shows the glory of the gospel in our lives is found in how we die, how we face death, how we face mortality, because of the victory that is available to us in Jesus Christ. If the gospel of Jesus Christ does not have a solution to the issue of death, then it is no different, it would be no different than any other religious idea or entity. It would be, in fact, no better to be a Christian than to be an atheist. Think about it. If our faith does not have an answer to the issue of death. But thank God our faith does have that answer. And it is given to us very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul asked the, uh, made the incredible statement, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The, the strength of sin, or, or the, the sting of sin, or the sting, I'll get it right in a minute. The sting of sin is death, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah, yeah, we do have an answer to death. The Apostle John was old. When he wrote his gospel, he was the last surviving apostle. 
He'd had a lot of years to think about the things that Jesus had said. And one of the things that he had on his mind, we know he had it on his mind. It was there by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But one of the things that John had on his mind was an encounter that had gone on between Jesus and his friend Simon Peter. It was one of the last things that they had before Jesus went up to glory. And it was the time when Jesus cooked up some fish on the shore to feed the disciples. And he asked Simon Peter those questions three times. Do you love me? Lovest thou me? More than these, uh, not the fish, more than the other disciples. It's what he had claimed. And after Simon Peter had affirmed his love for Jesus, and aren't you glad after Jesus had affirmed his love for Simon Peter? Then Jesus said this in John 21, 18. Simon Peter, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And then John gave us this commentary. This he, that's Jesus, spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. By the time John is writing this, the death of Simon Peter was a matter of record. It had already happened. He knew how Simon Peter had died. But the important thing that we see in this context was that John knew that when Jesus was saying that to Simon Peter, what he was saying was that in his death, in Simon Peter's death, he would still be glorifying God. That God would receive glory even in his death. Now, tradition asserts that Simon Peter was crucified. He was crucified upside down by request. I don't know if that's true or not. That's just tradition. But the important thing is that Simon Peter, like so many others, died as a martyr of Jesus Christ. That indeed we can say conclusively. Simon Peter died, and in his death he gave glory to God. And Jesus... John says, when he had spoken this, said to him, follow me. <laughs> follow me. Be my, you're still a disciple. That's the essence of discipleship. And so Simon Peter's failure had not, and denial had not negated his call to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Thank God today my failures do not negate me being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Your failures do not negate you being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Follow me, Jesus said. It's the future that Jesus was concerned with, not the past. And we can conclusively say then that Simon Peter followed Jesus until he died. And when he died, he died giving glory to God. You can do that. That can happen. Simon Peter himself would talk about it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Yes, I think it's right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. The key expression was that Jesus said to Simon Peter, when you're old, when you're old. You see, Simon Peter was not going to die as a young man. 
No wonder he was able to sleep when Herod was sound asleep, so soundly asleep that the angel had to uh, get after him to wake him up. How could he sleep that night before uh, when he was booked for execution the next day? He was still a young man. He didn't know how he was going to deliver him, but he was not going to die young. Jesus told him, when you're old. Oh, but when that gray hair had filled up his head, if it did, when the years piled up on Simon Peter, he knew his time was short. So even as the Lord Jesus showed me, both in his mind and in John's mind, the truth that Jesus gave him that day were, were, were still very clear for them both. And in our text this morning, Paul is speaking similarly. He has already told us, Because of the fact that God has hidden this treasure in our clay pot life. Because of this, he said, we don't give up. We don't lose heart. We don't quit. We don't stop. Instead, we live out the admonition of the Lord when he said, Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give unto thee the crown of life. Be faithful. You follow me. And so our passage this morning is going to conclude. And we've been seeing these four statements. And if you read down through the text, you'll see it over over again. Back in chapter 4 and on down all the way through verse 11 in chapter 5, it's just four. Therefore, four, therefore, four, therefore. Over and over again, then, Paul is making applications. This is the last one. And it's fitting that it's the last one. Because he talks to us about our death. We begin then by considering the earthly in verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this, that is the tent, or the tabernacle, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Twice in this passage, Paul is going to speak of the groaning that we have in verse 2. He'll say it again in verse 4, the groaning that is associated with living in this earthly body. And if you can stand up this morning without groaning, (laughs) first of all, say, thank you, God. And then second, be patient. Your time will come. It's an amazing thing about this earthly body. Living in it carries a lot of groaning. He calls it uh, the earthly house. Make no mistakes, our bodies are of the earth. So much so that the first Adam was referred to as being earthy. The first man was of the earth. Earthy. Earthy. When he begins to consider the future for the child of God, he uses two metaphors, the dwelling that we live in, a habitation of God, and the clothes that we put on so that that dwelling is not only then something that is considered under the metaphor of a house as opposed to a tent, uh, but also being clothed with that house so that our eternal dwelling then is going to take the place of this temporary tent. And that's what we have right now. This tent, this earthly house, we've called it a pot, uh, but it's also referred to as a tent, a tent. Nancy and I used to camp a lot and enjoyed it a lot. 
Uh, when you have a bunch of kids, camping's about all you can afford. Um, uh, but along came the kids and then more kids. And after a while, we packed up one day after a week of camping. And I, I don't know if it was Nancy who said it or I said it, but between the two of us, we got the point across. That was our last tent camping excursion. We had outgrown the tent. I mean, we had too much stuff that we had to carry with us, and it was just too much trouble. If we were going to keep camping, we would have to come up with a camper, and by God's grace, we did. I will remember, though, that last time that I thought, hey, it's just me and the boys. We'll go down and just stay in a tent and sleep on the ground. At midnight, I woke all three boys up and said, we're going to town. That $50 hotel bill was worth every penny. I was done camping and sleeping on the ground in a tent. The whole idea of a tent is that it is temporary. It is easily moved from place to place. Our tent life, this earthly body, is very efficient in that. It allows us to travel around, move through life, do a lot of different things. We can move. It's great. It is of the earth. It is designed for the earth. It is fit for this earth. God, the psalmist said, we're fearfully and wonderfully made, and we are. But the point he makes in this passage is that tents are temporary. Paul would use this same imagery in Romans chapter 8 where he would talk about how that uh, we are in this body, in this life, in this tent and, and as a result we are groaning and he speaks of it, how we are groaning and we are eagerly then anticipating the time of the redemption of the body. And the redemption of the body folk is going to happen in one of two ways. They won't both happen for us, but it will happen one way or the other way if you're a believer in Christ. Either you're going to die before Jesus returns. And if that is the case, as a believer in Christ, death is not going to get the victory over you because the Bible tells us that the dead in Christ shall rise first. And at that moment, in a twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible and will have a new body for all eternity. That will happen. Or, or that burial insurance you spent so much money on is not going to do you any good. And the funeral home can just go ahead and take that money and keep it because you're going to be raptured and you will go to heaven then instantaneously changed when the Bible says that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And so when it comes to this earthly tent then. This tabernacle is temporary in nature. It is destined for death. It's going to happen unless, unless we are alive when the rapture comes. And I'll tell you what, folk, you know, hardly a day passes these days that somebody doesn't ask me, Brother Rich, well, is this it? My answer is always the same. I've already said it a couple of times from this very pulpit. I'll say it again today. It sure could be. 
It could be. Because the rapture of Jesus Christ could happen at any moment. But if I had time this morning, I'd preach a different sermon. I don't have time, and I'm not going to preach it. But I will say this. You know, the Bible tells us that this thing is going to hinge not on a war, but on a peace treaty. But there would have to be war before peace can be declared. So it's the peace treaty I worry about more than I do the warfare. But I say worry about, that I'm more concentrated on. But that's a subject for another sermon and another day. Today we're talking about this earthly house. And there's really no doubt about what's going to happen. We're going to groan in it. It is going to get older. It is going to suffer from decay. It will finally die. But for the believer in Christ, there is something more to this than just living and dying. I may be addressing someone in this very building who is not a believer in Christ. You have never trusted Jesus as your Savior. I'm going to ask you a very pointed question this morning. What's going to happen to you when you die? What about death? There may be those watching from home. How do you deal with death? What is going to happen when you die? This earthly house, Paul says, is going to be destroyed. It's not like you're going to take the tent down, wrap it up, fold up the stakes, put it in a bag, and store it in the attic. Uh, This tent is going to be destroyed. Death does that to it. That's the earthly house. Uh, But there is the earthly, and we groan in our tents, but we groan in anticipation then of the eternal. If this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked." Now, the Bible uh, speaks many times of the fact that we have a dwelling place that will be with the Lord. We think that eternal dwelling place is going to be in heaven. It is not. Uh, we will, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, the Bible says, and our eternal abode is going to be in what the Bible refers to as that new Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven, and uh, it is indeed a big, big house, and there are lots and lots of rooms. Uh, only the young folks got that one. That's a, a praise and worship song. I don't think we'll play football in it, but... Uh, You'd have to know the song. There's a big, big house at New Jerusalem. And we will have a habitation in that. And so the dwelling in our text shifts from the tent to a house or building. A building, a house which is from heaven. A house not made with hands. And it is eternal. So where the tent is temporary in nature, it's designed to be temporary, it's movable, uh, then we have a building. It's not movable. House that's not made with hands. 
You see, Jesus talked about that in that famous passage in John chapter 14. When he said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself, that where where I am, there you may be also. I go to prepare a place for you. And he has. He will. He is. And uh, so it is not a place that's made with our hands. Uh, Thank God we don't have to finance it. uh, Don't have to pay interest on it. uh, Don't have to get a mortgage on it. It is not one of our building. It is one of his buildings. A house not made by human hands. So we've got a temporary building. uh, That is this body. But we also have an eternal building. A house not made with hands. You know, the Old Testament believers struggled to understand what was happening. And even when Jesus gave them that information in John chapter 14, even the apostles struggled. You might remember that Thomas asked him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Uh, You see, that that whole subject of life after death in the Old Testament was veiled in obscurity, so much so that a lot of the Jews in Jesus' day had stopped believing in a resurrection from the dead altogether. To them, he just died and was buried, and that was it. A lot of people like that today. But that veil of obscurity, that veil of mystery that was over to what, what happened to believers when they died. There, you had a few passages. I mean, Job, and that was the first, probably the first book that was written in the Bible. And Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand upon the latter day upon the earth. And after the skin worm shall have destroyed this body, Job said, yet in my flesh I will see God. You see, they had a few passages like that. But so much of what we know now and take for granted, they didn't know. But thank God Jesus forever lifted that veil of obscurity when he died and was buried and rose again. The subject then of life after death had a very real and very visible and very personal way of manifesting itself. We see Jesus Christ. And so Paul is able to speak authoritatively. This tent, yes, will be destroyed. This tent will be dissolved. Yet we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So we've got the earthly. We have the eternal. And then he speaks of the earnest. Verse 5. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also has given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident. Yeah, he said that twice. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Verse 5 then speaks of the Spirit as the earnest. The whole subject of salvation is often spoke of in Scripture under the heading of redemption. You know this. Redemption is a purchase of something. And uh, God is is not only going to purchase us, (laughs) uh, He's going to renovate us. (laughs) That redemption, that purchase of us carries the promise that he's going to make us into a completely new 
body, a complete new. So he buys us, and with that comes the promise that he's going to redeem us. We are still waiting uh, in that concept of redemption, that purchase. We're still waiting for the ultimate effect of that, the, redeem, the redemption of the body, of the body. And, and some of that is still mysterious. Uh, John would say in his first epistle, brethren, uh, we know not what we shall be, but we know this, when he shall appear, we'll be like him. So we're going to be like Jesus was in his glorified body. Jesus had a glorified body, and we're going to be like him. John had some experience with that. It's carefully recorded for us in his words, so we can see it too. We don't know everything about that. I can't cross all of the I's, uh, T's and dot all the I's for you, but I can tell you this. We're going to be like Jesus. Our redemption body is going to be like his. There is a body. It is going to be redeemed. All this is a promise. But until God completely finishes that transaction, and I'm not, don't misunderstand me, I'm not telling you that our salvation is, is somehow incomplete. Uh, listen, when we are saved, we're saved, okay? But obviously, there's a part of this promise that has to do with this body. And as much as we hear about living forever, I can't imagine living forever in this body. After I see what it's like at 64, I could only imagine what it'd be like at 64,000. Man, this, this body is not suitable for eternity. We know that. So God is going to renovate. Hey, we're going to have a new body. And until that happens, God has given us some earnest we know what earnest is. So did they. When Paul wrote this, what did earnest mean back then? Same thing it means today. It means that you're buying something and you put something down to guarantee that you are going to complete the transaction. When God saves us, He gives us the Holy Spirit who comes and takes up residence in our life and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life as a believer and in my life as a believer is God's promise to us. It is His earnest that yes, he is going to complete the transaction. And I always like to say, God has never backed out on a deal yet, and he never will. By being the one who is redeeming us and being the one then who puts down the earnest, that means that the completion of this deal, if you want to look at it as a deal, this completion of our redemption is not up to us. God is the one who's put the earnest down. <laughs> God is the one who's going to have to finish the transaction. Every now and then somebody asks me, I just don't understand why you Baptists believe in security of the believer. Well, number one, it's not just us Baptists, but number two, I can't understand this passage of Scripture any other way. If God is the one who is redeeming us, and it is, and God is the one who's put down the earnest, and it is, then who is responsible for completing the transaction? God is. It's not up to me, it's up to God. God would have to back out on the deal. And he doesn't do that. And this isn't even the only passage that speaks of this. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says, In whom you also trusted, 
after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. That's Ephesians 1, 14. No wonder Paul says we are confident. We are always confident. We're confident. So the overarching feature then of having this treasure in our earthen vessels means that even up to that last moment of this life and all the stuff that goes up to it, God can still work in our lives to reveal the treasure. Maybe especially in that moment. Uh, my mother fam- uh, told me, I've shared it with you before, but I'll say it again today. My mother, I had a conversation with her just a couple of days, the last time I really got to talk to her. And she told me, she said, Son, I'm not afraid of dying. It's just what I had to do to get there. And I've had reason to think of my mother's very sincere statement many, many, many times. Because it seems like for every person that I get up and I get a phone call and they went to bed last night and seemed fine and they woke up the next day, only they didn't wake up. They were gone. And for every person I hear about like that these days, it seems like there are a whole lot more who go through that long, laborious process of dying. Most of them end up asking me as if I would have the answer, why doesn't God just call me on home? And if my time comes, I'll probably be answering the same, asking the same question. I don't understand why I'm still here. Well, I want to answer that question as best I can biblically for you today. And it's found right here in our text. You see, the truth is, God put a treasure in your clay pot, your vessel. And as long as you're alive, then as a believer in Christ, you live your life, yes, groaning, But you live your life then anticipating the fact that this life is going to be over. And then there is a new body if our earthly house is destroyed. We have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And not only then do we have that promise... But God confirmed it by his presence in us so that the Holy Spirit lives in us, constantly reminding us, yes, even of that time, that God is going to complete the task and that right up to the very end, and sometimes especially at the end, we are able to give him glory and shine out the light of his glory through Jesus Christ. This may have been somewhat what the writer of the book of Hebrews was talking about in Hebrews 2.14 when he said, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, uh, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Through the fear of death. Now, 
I hope it's not inappropriate to say this from the pulpit, but I'm going to do it anyway. I've known many a redneck who had no apparent fear of death. And I, I, I use that term kind of advisedly. I, I know, you know, just, I hope you all know what I'm thinking about. Just the guys who would put their life at risk for nothing more than to have a watch this moment who'd put their life at risk for nothing more than just a cheap burst of adrenaline, cheap thrill, with no apparent fear of death or concept of death. Listen, I don't believe God intends for us to be foolish when he talks about how that he is delivering us from the fear of death. I don't think he's delivering us just to to have some kind of Ridiculous view, boastful kind of view, to live our life recklessly, that, that, that's not what this is about. Uh, Paul lived in jeopardy every hour, he said. All he had to do to stop it was hush. What was putting him in jeopardy every hour was the preaching of the cross. All he had to do was stop. That's all. Didn't require anything else. Just stop. If it just hushed. But he kept on. It was the preaching of the cross. His stand for Jesus Christ that put his life at risk. But he didn't quit. And he would say in this passage, Therefore we, and including himself, we do not lose heart. For even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. So that at the end of the book, in Revelation chapter, near the end of the book, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11 gives us a glorious promise. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives to the death. So I'm going to read these last three passages today. I don't have time to comment on them very much. Verse 9 Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether that be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. Paul brings up then the judgment of Christ, judgment seat of Christ which is convened to consider the believer's works. And that's exactly what this says in our text. text. That is, our works, our service of God. You see, our sins were judged by God on the cross, and Jesus Christ has paid for our sins. It's not our sins that will be brought into play in the judgment seat of Christ. It's our service, our works, how we served, what we did whether they were good, whether it was bad, whether it was acceptable, whether it was unacceptable. Another passage, Paul talked about how that some of our work, even our service, could have been done the wrong way or for the wrong motive. And as a result, it will be considered wood, hay, and stubble, and it will go up in smoke. Some will be saved, Paul said, yet so as by fire. That is, they'll still be saved, but they'll have nothing of which Christ could approve other than their salvation. What a tragic way to go into eternity 
No wonder he talked about the terror of the Lord. Yes. Yes. God has placed this treasure in an earthen vessel. Yes, then. We'll one day give an account for how we manifested the treasure. Now, I don't talk a whole lot about uh, false doctrines, but there's one that is growing by leaps and bounds in the Christian culture today. It's known popularly by Calvinism, but it's often referred to as, as the uh, uh, doctrines of grace. It might be called uh, 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 the Reformed Doctrine. It has a lot of different names. Um, I'm, I don't believe that way. I want to make that very clear to you in case you haven't figured that out now by my preaching. Uh, I don't believe that way. Uh, Calvinism does champion some things that I do believe in. It champions the sovereignty of God. Oh, how much I believe in the sovereignty of God. Champions the purpose of God. Oh, I believe in the purpose of God. Champ Calvinism champions then uh, uh, the power uh, of God and the grace of God. Oh, yes, I believe in the power and the grace of God. But unfortunately, Calvinism has gone so far in its efforts to champion those things that it has almost taken away or at least taken a different view of the importance of believing, which is what the Bible says over and over and over again. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And sometimes, I'm afraid, in, in so championing the sovereignty of God, it seems like they want to, it kind of takes away the responsibility that we have so clearly revealed in this passage to be that person, that clay pot kind of life that is revealing the treasure so as to show the gospel to those whose minds are blinded to the truth. And it does this by suggesting that God, uh, of course, has already predetermined who's all going to be saved. And then when God is ready for them to be saved, God sovereignly regenerates them. They will believe at that point, according to the theory, uh, but that God can even some say regenerate a person without them even hearing the gospel. But then he regenerates them, and then when they do hear, they'll receive it. It's a complicated theory. That's why I don't like to talk about it a lot. But I think it's worthwhile within this whole concept. You see, Jesus talked in Matthew nine thirty seven. I said I wouldn't comment on these passages much. Jesus, in Matthew 9, 37, talked about the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. And then he said this, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into the field. I follow my thinking here. You see, if God is going to save whoever he's going to save, and he does it whenever he wants to do it without, why would Jesus pray to send out laborers? I think the old hymn writer answered it best long ago. In the harvest field now ripened, 
There's a work for all to do. Hark the voice of God is calling to the harvest, calling you. Little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, please.